0: Today, on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. There's a real shortage in knowledge around C. difficile infection, and there's a shortage in knowledge both on the provider side, but also the patient side. Today, Dr. Paul Feuerstadt, a gastroenterologist,
1: joins the podcast to discuss all things C. diff in this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior VP Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright. And joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Paul Feuerstadt. Dr. Feuerstadt is an attending physician at the Gastroenterology Center of Connecticut, as well as an assistant clinical professor of medicine at Yale New Haven Hospital, Yale Medical School in New Haven, Connecticut. Dr. Feuerstadt, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: So, to start off today, could you describe your clinical practice setting? So in a bit of a unique practice, I am part of what we call a hybrid practice. So I spend about a quarter of my time in academia, teaching residents, fellows, and medical students on service in the hospital, and three quarters of my time in a private practice or in an office, scoping, seeing everything from liver to lumen. No, that's cool. And I'm always interested in others' path into a career in medicine. Could you share yours? So I had a a pretty interesting path. My career really started when I was about 12 years old. I, I woke up one day with some pain in the back of my eye, and, uh, and it was intermittent. And I went to school that day, and I'll never forget, I was sitting in social studies class, we were talking about uh, JFK, and there was a bird outside, and I moved my eyes laterally, and I got an excruciating pain to the back of my head. Um, and it went about the rest of my day, I didn't really think a ton about it, because when you're that age, you're invincible. And uh, I got home, and it was happening more and more. So I, I ended up going to a friend who's an ophthalmologist, and he really didn't see much, and ultimately, they scanned my my brain, and they saw that I had a, a sphenoid sinusitis. At, at that time, I was a probably bacteremic, and they ended up admitting me to the hospital because it took them about 72 hours to kind of get everything done. I got admitted to the hospital, got antibiotics for about a month. A month later, they rescanned me. I thought everything was good. I was back playing tennis and doing my things, and uh, lo and behold, I had a, a blockage still. So I ended up going to the OR and uh, having some things removed and uh, my sinuses opened up. And I said, this is what I wanna do with my life. But it sounds like you went to, pardon the
1: bad pun, Norm and I were gonna talk about this, my sound guy. we were gonna have a lot of bad puns and, and jokes here. Sound like you went to the other end of the human body.
0: Yes, So 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 I, I went to the other side of the human body Uh, And the reason for that is when I went to medical school, I really liked the surgical disciplines, but I also enjoyed the thought processes of an internal medicine doctor. And gastroenterology afforded me both. It afforded me the opportunity to be a bit of an interventionalist, but also see patients over the long term, impacting them over the long term, and, and also have the acuity of disease that we see in gastroenterology, upper GI bleeds, food impactions cholangitis, things things of that sort as well. So it was a nice balance for me, and, and the rest is history. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always amazing to me that, you
1: know, one of the things that, and we've had a discussion on various topics, but one of the things is is that you have to eat. Like, as a human, there are other things you don't have to do, but something that we all have to do is eat, and if you can't do that, or if you do it and it causes problems, you know, that's a fairly important thing. So I'd like to get right into it. When you look up your name, you find a great website called Everything C. diff.
0: How did that get started and and why? So Everything C. diff was started a number of years ago now. It went live in 2019, the year before the pandemic in May of 2019. But it was something that I was thinking about from about 2016. And the reason that that was created was that there's a real shortage in knowledge around C. difficile infection. And there's a shortage in knowledge both on the provider side, but also the patient side. It's very bizarre to me that if you were to go out and ask people if they knew what the term MRSA or VRE was or is, a lot of people would say, yeah, I've heard of that. Seems like a bad bacterial infection. But if you use the term C. diff, unless somebody has had somebody in their family or a friend who's had it, they'll look at you with a blank blank stare. And when you search the, the web, there really isn't a ton of information out there that mm-hmm. that is available. So that site was created as an informational source in parallel for both patients and for providers. The provider information is is database. Mm-hmm. The patient information is explained in, I'll say, less medical terminology right. and more patient-centric terminology so that the vision is a patient doesn't know where to go for information or feels as though their provider might not know as much as they'd prefer them to know about it, this will provide them with that information to go in and say, hey, look, you might want to check out this site or you might want to look up these references because even in the patient section, the references are listed. Right.
1: And I always find that sometimes when patients really become aware of what's going on, they can actually overwhelm you as a practitioner. I mean, I was still in practice in the emergency department at the sort of dawn of, you know, the internet where People in the general public were using them. And we always said this was positive internet search sign when someone would come in with like 14 pages from Google or someplace and you're like, "Uh oh, they're going to know more about this than I am. This is going to be, this is going to be a problem. So let's talk about C. diff. What should the general medical professional's knowledge base be about C. diff? You know, as we've talked about, I'm trained in emergency medicine. There's a lot of medical folks that listen to this podcast, but I don't know the percentage of gastroenterologists, and certainly those who are going to be as knowledgeable as you are C. diff. So what should we know for baseline information? So
0: when you think about C. diff, I think probably the most important piece to understand currently is that there's two parts to this infection. There's the part that releases toxins that causes the symptoms. As an ER doc, that's all you care about. Right. How can I get that under control? And the answer is either vancomycin or pedaxamycin. Very simple. But the the long-term care groups, the internal medicine providers, the infectious disease providers, the gastroenterologists, the oncologists, the people that see this, let's say, as an outpatient or not quite as acutely, they need to care about, yes, what we call the vegetative phase that releases toxins and is controlled by antimicrobials, but the other phase, and that's the spore phase. The spore phase will remain in a patient system even if they're treated completely appropriately for C. And it's up to our microbiota or the microorganisms within our colon to -hmm. give that spore phase the knockout punch. But unfortunately, up to 35% of the time, we're not able to regrow our microbiota appropriately and patients get recurrences. And that's where this cycle of recurrence after recurrence after recurrence really emanates. Right. And so this brings me to the, the
1: next question, which I've read about. And I I have used the term microbiome, um, and I'm assuming that's more of a biologist's term, or I heard you use microbiota.
0: Is there a difference between those two terms? So that's an excellent question, and the answer is a resounding yes for clinicians. But for patients, we have to go with the flow. So the microbiome is the genetic complement of all the microorganisms in an individual's intestine, if we're talking about the colonic microbiota or microbiome. So that is the genetic complement of everything. And then they look at the frequency of certain patterns to understand the microorganisms that are there. So when we talk about the microorganisms specifically, it's the microbiota. When we talk about the entire complement, it's the microbiome. Okay. Well, that's helpful. And that's good. So now I'm going to use the right term from now
1: on. And the next thing that I had sort of heard about, and I think I may have heard it, you know, from a conversation with friends before I heard about it medically, is the fecal microbiota transplant. And then you, if you look that up, then you realize, well, there's professional literature and then there's people about how to do it home. And I'm like, wait a minute, that does not sound like something you should
0: do on your own. So can you take us through that? Okay. So, really getting back to, I think, C. diff, but, but right. there's larger implications of this over the long term. With C. diff, in 2008, we understood what those deficiencies were in the microbiota that resulted in C. diff infection initially, but also recurrence. And there's two main bacterial phyla that we think about, the bacteroidetes and the formicides. And those happen to be the most populous of the bacterial phyla, but they're depleted in patients to get C. diff. So, we use antibiotics to control the vegetative phase, patients feel better, but once we pull off those antibiotics, sometimes the bacteroidetes and firmicutes are not able to regrow and that causes a recurrence. Well, logic lives. What can we do to correct that so-called dysbiosis or alteration of the microbiota from normal? Why don't we give them a full complement of microorganisms to see what happens? And that's in effect what we do with fecal microbiota transplantation and over the last 15 years or so, we've seen really excellent and encouraging data with regards to safety of this process, as well as, of course, efficacy. And over the course of the 15 years, a number of different ways this has been administered. The pivotal trial that first showed prospectively in a randomized controlled trial, they did it nasoenterically. Ooh. Yes, exactly. Correct response, nasoenterically. Now we do it differently. Some people still do it colonoscopically, meaning via a colonoscopy. There's enema formulation, and there, there are pill formulations as well. So the theory here is we know there's a deficiency. Why don't we replace and supplement? And this potentially could be applied not only to C. diff, but to other diseases as
1: well. Right, because that's the, I'm logically going to go down this sort of microbiota questions on a few other things. But I did notice on your website, somebody tweeted out um, the states with the five highest and lowest rates of C. diff and I noticed my home state of Massachusetts was number two. And I don't know, you've, you're in Connecticut, you've probably heard the term mass hole. And I don't know if that's, you know, a- applicable or not, but that it, I wonder why we're number two or what are the things that would make these different states have higher and lower rates.
0: So there's a number of different factors that we believe impact this. But honestly, we don't fully understand. The Northeast is definitely a hotbed of C. difficile. In fact, the pivotal point for C. diff epidemiologically came around 2000 to 2005. Very nice study in Quebec, Canada, and Montreal, actually, that looked at the changing epidemiology of C. diff, and they showed a remarkable increase in incidence of the infection and a remarkable increase in the severity of infection, higher rates of recurrence. What they were characterizing is something called the NAP1BIO27 strain, not clinically relevant in 2023, but... It kicked off the epidemic of C. difficile and that was observed in Montreal and then Pittsburgh. The thing that I will tell you is that in areas of high urban populations mm. and tertiary and quaternary care centers, mm. you will see more of this because more antimicrobials are being given because the patients are sicker. Right. So in Massachusetts, you have Boston right. in obviously we have Manhattan relatively close. Right. So we have a lot of different cities and a lot of different environments where this, this will, this will pop up. Okay. And I think that, um, I don't know if I mentioned this
1: on, I did do a story on this on the news part of our podcast, but this just fascinated me, is that there are some articles recently published from the United Kingdom and Netherlands that demonstrated that there are 13 types of bacteria found in the guts of folks that are associated with depressive symptoms. That to me is, I mean, I'm an osteopath, I, you know, I was trained that we're, the whole body is connected and so forth, but that just kind of
0: blew my mind. Um, can you go into that a little bit? So we are really looking at the tip of the iceberg. In the pivotal C. diff trials that looked at products called live biotherapeutic products, they did health-related quality of life analyses. So how did the product impact them? And look, logic lives again. If somebody doesn't recur with C. diff, of course their quality of life is going to improve. Right. What was interesting was with two separate products, two separate products, when they looked at the health-related quality of life of the people that received placebo, no real impact if they recurred. The people that received the intervention, the microbiota restoration, mm-hmm. it increased. Wow. So we are seeing a lot of different signals. And those signals, yes, depression, Parkinson's disease, some people believe with Alzheimer's, some people believe with autism neurologic disease is big cardiovascular disease is big pulmonary disease is big but i will caution everybody remember in the 90s we thought gene therapy was going to be the end all and be all and it fell on its face right. i don't think the microbiota is going to fall on its face i do think that there are signals but i think that it's going to be in limited diseases and the issue that we've seen is initially we saw this with cdip because we had a defined problem and it was working mm. so what do clinicians want to do or patients want to do hey, they're going to go on YouTube and look this up and do it themselves and see if it's going to help their irritable bowel syndrome and fill in the blank other disease. The problem is that in science, we have to define a problem before we solve it. Exactly. So, from 2010 to 2015, we were trying to solve it without defining it. Now, we're taking a step back and defining what the quote deficiencies might be and then targeting therapy for that, which obviously is I believe the right way to go about this.
1: Right, this sounds a little bit like the uh, Milano gene that we saw, where the you know we thought that we were going to be able to create a serum from from these folks who had these insanely high HDLs, and as it turned out, that really didn't happen. Um, I do remember the articles when those came out. I also, you know, for a while there were people who were like, "Oh yeah, like use do the uh, the yogurt enema or something," and I'm like, and I'm like, oh, that doesn't make much sense. I, I mean, maybe. Yeah. Yep. And I did follow a couple other articles. I mean, clearly one that was very interesting was about, and these are three bacteria species I can't pronounce, but the dimension Louis Lewy bodies. That's actually, you know, really impressive. I
0: read that paper and I'm like, this is some pretty solid science. So, so what I want to point out here is the concept of the metabolome. And this is something that I think as clinicians will be really important. We don't care what's in our gut. We don't. We don't care what microbial species are in our gut, we care metabolically what they're doing. And that is the metabolome. And that will either promote disease or prevent disease in certain instances. And that, we believe, is in effect what the connection would be with anything outside of the gut, with the gut being the core for
1: it. Right. And I did read um, about one study that was sort of, now it was looking at mice, but obviously that's where we start, about how different um, bacteria in your gut can influence your actual cravings for different foods and how some of them may actually make you want sort of sweeter or, or more palatable foods.
0: Um, thoughts on that? 100%. So, and, and this, I think, probably explains maybe some of the cravings that women who are pregnant might have. Okay. It, this is a movable feast right now. There are so many interesting trials that need to be run to assess, again, initially what the change might be. So before pregnancy, then during pregnancy correlated with what the cravings are. But I, mm-hmm. my assumption is yes. I think I think that there's a lot of elements here. Some people believe obesity right. might be somewhat linked to the gut. I think it's somewhat, but I think that there's certain people that might have dysbiosis that leads to that. But then other individuals, there's other elements. As I said, I'm not somebody who believes this is going to explain everything. It won't, but I think that it will explain a few things. And Anything that it helps explain is better than we were before. Absolutely.
1: I mean, interestingly, as a clinician and also as the medically trained person in my family, I know that there are patients and people who I have used the colloquial term of having like a a stomach of iron or nothing upsets their intestines. And you're like, well, that can't just be flat-out genetics. Obviously, they might have a really um, good
0: microbiota. Yes. Yep. No, it's—and when we say good microbiota— we're talking about a diverse microbiota, oh, a you. variable microbiota, because a variable microbiota is able to compensate in multiple ways, just like our society. Right. The healthier our society is, I believe, the more diverse it is, right. because we have different approaches to solve a problem from different backgrounds, and you solve the problem the most efficient way. Right. And, and certainly agriculture
1: is in on that too, that you know, the more diverse your, your crops are, you can handle, some of the crops can handle one adverse event versus the others and so forth. Well, this is really fascinating. And f- I wanted to, I always end this with, with a specialist that we have. So, finally, what new and exciting topic? We've covered a lot, but what is the new and exciting topic that you think in, in a year or two we're all going to be talking about
0: um, that has you really excited right now? So, we're really at the precipice of greatness. We currently have one FDA approved so called LBP, we have another one that's being reviewed currently. Uh, with a decision in the next four to six weeks. This will open a lot of doors because it's a new class of treatment from the FDA, this live biotherapeutic product. Mm. And I think that once you get an approval, it's similar to dupilumab. Dupilumab had an FDA approval for asthma. Oh, wait a second though. We know, or theoretically it should help with eosinophilic esophagitis. Right much easier to short track a clinical trial, jump to a phase three trial when you already have safety data previously. So my assumption is that this is now, the door has finally been opened for us to apply some of the technology that is FDA approved to other disease states, assuming that the science is behind it. And my hope would be in the GI space, we're gonna look at irritable bowel syndrome, we're gonna look a lot of ulcerative colitis, Those are two big areas that have been very fertile for research. And I think certain subsets of patients will benefit from treatments like this. So really, in the GI space, that's, I think, where we are. I think you pointed out a very astute thing. I think in the psychiatry space, there's going to be a lot of interesting elements, depression, among many other other pieces. And I think we're going to really start to learn about how these treatments can be broadly applied. Well, this
1: has been amazing. And for all the um, scatologic humor that we were prepared to to launch on, I think that we definitely learned quite a bit. And thank you so much for joining me.
0: Well, it's a true honor. Thank you so much for having me today.
1: And that's today's episode of The Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa flash briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Paul Forerstadt and Deshaun Mullen, Kate Rio, and Norm Dion for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.